Well, hello again, everyone, and hello to everybody online. It's, uh, it's great to get the opportunity to share with you this morning. You know, um, every now and again, sometimes, maybe not even once in a generation, but every now and again, uh, there are things that happen in our world and everything that we know at that point gets turned on its head. And, and uh, what we once thought was true, once what we were sure was true, turns out not to be the case. Uh, for example, back in the early 16th century, there was this Polish astronomer, a guy named Nicholas Copernicus, and uh, he began to theorise that despite what everybody at the time knew to be true, that is to say that the Earth was at the centre of the universe, he began to theorise that wasn't the case. And uh, he became convinced, in fact, that it was the Sun that sits at the centre of our solar system and all of the planets, including the Earth, orbited around it. That was such a, a profound shift in the understanding of creation that it became called the Copernican Revolution. And of course our world has never been the same since. Back in 1903, on December 17 to be exact, at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, uh, a fellow named Orville Wright piloted the first successful powered heavier-than-air aircraft. Everybody knew that couldn't be done. Even Orville and Wilbur's father had publicly declared that this would never happen. And of course the world has never been the same since. And I've got to ask, who's seen the movie Oppenheimer? Has anybody been out to see it yet? Ah, there you go. But you know the story, don't you? The world's very first nuclear bomb nuclear weapon, a concept that went from science fiction to an horrid reality in less than 50 years. And of course we've noticed, haven't we, that our world has never been the same since. Now our passage from 1 Corinthians today uh, also paints the picture of a Copernican revolution, something that's happened in our world to change our understanding of the world, in particular, of course, of God and how he works in his world. And uh, Paul is writing here uh, that what many of the Corinthians knew to be self-evident, self-evident about the gospel of Jesus, was in fact wrong. How did that work? Well, because the gospel of our Lord Jesus, right, the Apostle Paul, was and remains the very opposite of what we human beings will come up with for ourselves. It is um, the very opposite of what we humans would see as self-evident wisdom and power. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a look at our passage in a bit, of more, a bit more detail. Father, thank you for your servant Paul, and that through his inspired word you continue to speak to us even today. Please ask that you might humble us by your word, remind us of your awesome power to save completely. Please refresh our hope and joy as we're reminded that it doesn't matter what those around of us might think about your gospel or of us as your servants. It doesn't even matter what others who claim the name of Christ might say. Your truth remains your truth. So please we ask now that you grant us total confidence in your power to save by your gospel word. 
Make us bold, I ask, Lord, to proclaim that to whoever might listen to us. Amen. Well, last week, Paul finished up in a way that kind of opened up the subject for this morning. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 17, he wrote, for, Paul, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. Let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that uh, subject, human wisdom, is uh, kind of the opener of where we go for today. You might also remember from last week that, uh, and we heard Raluca say it again, Corinth was in the mind of its citizens this really sophisticated city. And that wisdom word, Sophia, Sophia, comes up again, doesn't it? Sophisticated just is a way of saying wise, clever. It was largely shaped by Greek philosophy and it was spiced by this plethora of religious frameworks, including Judaism. And in their own eyes, this was a wise group of people. They, in general, saw themselves as people who had it together. And of course now some of these people had heard the gospel of Jesus and in God's mercy they'd been saved. And I'm speculating a little here, I admit that, but I, I do wonder whether because they were wise in their own eyes, they saw the gospel as yet a new form of wisdom, another batch of knowledge that they could uh, latch onto. Here is another way to look at our world. This is great, isn't it? We've got all of these options and here's yet another one and uh, it's it's possible too of course that those who'd come to Christ some of them in thinking it that way uh, had even decided that human wisdom needed to be added to the gospel in some way so that they might end up with an even superior gospel we don't actually know the details but what we do know is that two of the longest letters in the New Testament are written to a church that was an unholy mess. We know what the outcome was. And uh, what we read in today's passage is that Paul uh, hammers home to them that human wisdom is um, complete, absolute, and uncompromisingly in contradiction to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And the apostle made three points. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, he, he makes the argument that the message, the actual message of the gospel, um, uh, the gospel of Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God at work. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, he argues that the recipients of the gospel, that is people like us, those who are saved, we too are a demonstration of God's power and wisdom. And finally, in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he's arguing that the preacher, in this case Paul, of course, the preacher whom God had sent, Paul himself, was a demonstration. His preaching was a demonstration of God's power and wisdom. So we'll, we'll, begin, we'll begin with uh, uh, 18 through 25. Uh, Paul writes them to tell them there's been a Copernican revolution in their lives. And if you have a look at verse 18, you'll notice there's an enormous contrast. Need next slide, please, then. There we go. What is he right? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see the, the, the contrast 
foolishness and perishing as against salvation and the power of God. Complete opposites. In fact, wrote Paul, the gospel is so opposite to what we can work out for ourselves. Next slide, please. Uh, the gospel is so opposite to what we can work out for ourselves, it's impossible for human wisdom to work it out. See, it doesn't matter about thousands of years of human progress, thousands of years of human cleverness and wisdom. The world through its wisdom did not know him, didn't know Jesus. And in verses, uh, the verses that follow, 22 through 24, Paul takes that thought and he amplifies it. Next slide, please, then. Um, the Jews, they, they knew the gospel of Jesus couldn't be true. The idea that the Christ would be crucified was an oxymoron to them. And we know about oxymorons, by the way, don't we? Like fun run and spare cash. Okay. <laughs> You know, that, or spare time. They're things that can't exist together. Well, to them, the Christ, the Messiah, this um, uh, amazing ultimate king whom God was to send, this ultimate king descended from King David, the idea that he would be crucified, that he would die. And not just die, but to die a scandalous death, to die the death of someone under God's curse. The Jews then and today will say, no way. No way. And in the same way, the gospel uh, whereby someone died for others was to the Greeks. Oh, sheer foolishness. I mean, what can a dead person do? You're dead, you're dead. I mean, who ever heard of someone rising from the dead? Anybody in this room got a relative who rose from the dead? doesn't happen in our human experience, does it? So we, we think. So they thought, oh, this, this is not going to happen. Everyone knows that. What a joke. And yet Paul says, it's not foolishness. In fact, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now I suspect some of the Corinthian Christians kind of applauded uh, what Paul wrote here um, they applauded the idea that human wisdom had been upended and I'm pretty confident that as, as we're gathered here this morning um, many if not all of us will also applaud that God's wisdom trumps human wisdom that in fact human wisdom is so pathetic that it's foolishness compared with the wisdom of God but I also wonder I also wonder if there were some among those in Corinth who felt a little bit clever too. You see, here's a group of people who'd already been shaped by the wisdom of their city, the wisdom they'd heard from speakers around the traps. And I wonder if they thought that it would be just a little more clever, a little more wise to take what they'd learned here and add it to what the Apostle Paul said. And so I wonder if some of them had thought that in their maturity they'd got to move just a little bit on from the basics of the cross. Of course, Paul squashed that already flat, didn't he? It's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. Now, if we think about it for a moment, why on earth would we add 
human wisdom to the gospel. After all, God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. How could we ever import any of that back into our Christian understanding? And I think that's what's behind uh, verse 20, the almost sarcastic rhetorical questions that are there that uh, get kind of hammered home. Next slide, please, Anne. Um, Where is the wise person? Where is he? I mean, where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Where are they? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And remember this, brothers and sisters, Paul was not writing to Corinth in general here. He was writing to those who were Christians. He wasn't writing to the pagans of Corinth. He wanted God's people to be reminded that their salvation was the polar opposite of that foolishness that the world saw as wisdom and which I suspect some of them had continued to borrow from. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, this is kind of humbling. It's a humbling word. And and I think it's humbling. Do you want to go to the next slide, please, Anne? Um, It's humbling because deep, deep down in our hearts, uh, we continue to resent, even if we don't, you know, if, if we're really honest with ourselves, even if we don't notice it day by day, even if only a little, we continue to resent that we are not our own final authority. Uh, deep, deep down in our hearts, there remains this desire to run our own lives. Deep, deep down in our hearts, there's this confidence that we know what's best for us. Deep, deep, deep down in our hearts is this confidence that we are, in fact, a part of the action and that somehow God stands in need of our help and our cooperation, even to the point of that's how we're saved. Why is this? What goes on for us at this point? I'm going to change the slide up, please. Um, I think deep, deep down... Yeah, that's it. Deep, deep down in our hearts, there's this drive within us. You see, we want to be back in the centre of our own spiritual universe. Maybe not everywhere. Maybe not everywhere. But maybe just at those points where we're confident that we've matured and we've moved just a little bit beyond the basics of the cross. You might say to me, well, how can you be so confident, Ted? Well, I'll give you two reasons. The first is because that's true of me. As I reflect on my own life, as I continue to read the Bible and uh, uh, understand it more and more, um, the humbling, the embarrassing truth is that I've never totally let go of that desire to run my own life, no matter how much I'd like to think that I have. Second reason is because I've lost count of the number of people who've come to me at a morning tea or have sat with me over a coffee or a meal and have said to me something along the lines of, Ted, you know what, you know what, mate, I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says. 
but I still think. And in the broader life of Christians in our world, how very often do we hear how our Christianity has got to keep up with the times? Uh, how we ought to be adjusting our beliefs? We've got to um, get with the times, haven't we? Do we not hear that all the time? Bring our beliefs in line with modern thought. Now let me ask you, when you see a sign like that, what do, what do you do? You're driving down the road and you saw that sign. You'd slow up and be careful, wouldn't you? I would. Why? Because you're on slippery ground and there's a danger of running off the road. And you know what? When we think in our cleverness that uh, maybe we can go just a little bit beyond the basics of the gospel, then we're in the same kind of danger as someone who says that sign. We're really very much in danger of wrecking ourselves. See, brothers and sisters, we never, ever move beyond the basics of the cross. And in our world today, when issues like same-sex marriage or the supposedly self-evident goodness and rightness of other religions or the uh, supposedly um, self-evident outdatedness of our Bibles as an authority in our lives, um, as we deal with those things, we ought never ever deal with them by thinking it through for ourselves we deal with those kind of issues in the light of the word of God as we've received it that's the start and the finish and you know what as clever as I, th some, I think we sometimes think we are um, we're reminded aren't we that at the point where we move beyond the basics of the cross our cleverness becomes foolishness, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And this weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the foolishness of God and his power is seen, first of all, in the gospel of Jesus. And secondly, this foolishness of God and its power is seen in the lives of those he calls to himself. Uh, in verse 26, brothers and sisters... Uh, think of what you were when you were called. Next slide, please, Anne. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now, uh, don't be wrong here. I, I don't think Paul was simply saying that the church in Corinth was made up entirely of ordinary people. It's not as simple as that. Uh, perhaps many of the Corinthian Christians were, in fact, just ordinary people. It would seem highly likely that is the case. However, it's not true that there were no wealthy or influential people in those churches and those, those congregations. There were. The point Paul's making is that God operates uh, in a completely different way to the way we do. You see, if we as human beings had to decide who went to heaven... Well, I know what we'd decide, wouldn't we? We'd decide we all go. That's just the way it is. And then we'd have to think about that for a bit and decide, actually, nah, you don't, we don't want him. It's not hard to cast your eye around the world today or even back through history and see there's a whole bunch of people we wouldn't want in heaven with us because they're just making, this world, making heaven the same as this world. So we'd have to start thinking about how we'd choose people and um, uh, 
we'd start finding some kind of criteria whether it be around their education, a person's experience, that person's achievements, perhaps their social work. I, I don't know what it might be. Um, in our contemporary world, we might even send people off for psychometric testing or something along those lines. Um, in my more... Um, what's the right word for it? My sense of humour tells me we might even have a TV show and call it Heaven's Idol. And some of the winners could get to go to heaven or we could have Heaven's Survivor. And those who are still there at the end of the month might get to go to heaven. I don't, I don't know how we do it. But God didn't and doesn't do that, does he? God chose Corinthians. Do you remember what David said about Corinthians last week? What that name was synonymous for? If you were called a Corinthian, you were told you were debauched. Corinthians were the debauched ones, the drunks, the drug addicts, the sexually perverted and the otherwise immoral. They were not a nice bunch. But, Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. Uh, in the end, as, as this next verse, uh, this verse of something now says, not the tiniest thing for us to be clever about. Not the tiniest of things for us to boast about. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, as we sit here this morning and hear this, we've heard this so many times, do we, uh, do we get how awesome it is? Do we really get how awesome it is? He's the God of the universe, the God who created all that there is just by speaking and against whom we've rebelled. This God doesn't look at us and see what family we were born into or even what group we were born into, what nation we were born into. He doesn't look at our education or our IQ or our career. He doesn't look at any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't give us tests to sit out to sort of sort out the best of us for his kingdom. He doesn't look back on our past. And isn't that wonderful? Because that means there's nothing in our track record, nothing in our past that can disqualify us from the love of God. And even if we do spend nights um, awake at two o'clock in the morning ruminating on something that's churning up our hearts, uh, God doesn't look at that stuff. He accepts us as we are. Uh, and I don't know where any of us are this morning, but whether we're in church or not, There's nothing in our lives right now that disqualifies us from God's love for us in Jesus. There can't be. And perhaps most amazing of all, because we can't see into the future, but we can be confident, there's nothing yet to come that can take us from the love of God, not even death itself. How does that work? Why is that so? Because our relationship with God is entirely dependent upon God and his sovereign activity. Our relationship with God depends on what he has done in and through Jesus at the cross. And that's it. The foolishness 
of God and his power seen first of all in his gospel. It's seen in those to whom uh, the gospel goes and those who are saved. And third, uh, the, the foolishness of God is seen in, in this case, in the power of Paul and particularly Paul's preaching. Um, as chapter 2 begins, Paul seems to be playing on this tendency of the Corinthians to make heroes of the preachers they liked. They didn't have Google to look up their heroes, but they knew who they were. They knew who they were. And I find it fascinating, Paul didn't criticise what Apollos and Peter said. In fact, we, we actually know they were not false teachers. They were not false teachers. The problem was the way the Corinthians focused in on what the, their society, what they sort of, their culture had ingrained in them to focus in on. They were interested in the rhetoric and the style and the showmanship almost. And Paul criticises them for not only judging a speaker in that way, but the fact that they'd actually even be arguing with each other about it. What do you mean you, you went and heard? What, what do you, Apollos is much better than Peter. And you can imagine Peter's would say, oh, they were as partisan as the football games here. Friends, they forgot that what really counted was the content of what those preachers had to say. And even today, uh, the power of a preacher is not found in their eloquence or superior wisdom, nor is a preacher's power found in their wise and persuasive words. The power of preaching is found in the message of the cross of Jesus. That's where it lies. The power of true preaching lies in the cross and those lives that are changed are a demonstration of God's spirit at work in people's lives. So as people preach, so God works by his spirit. That's the evidence of the power of preaching. As people hear and respond to the historical reality that Jesus died on a Roman cross to bear the consequences of our rebellion against God and to restore us to him, so that's where we find life. And we find life where there was death and we find hope where there was hopelessness. So friends, uh, as we sit here this morning, I hope there's nobody in the room in this boat. Uh, next slide, please, Anne. I hope there's nobody in the room in this boat. But I do sometimes wonder whether there are those among us who do find that the, um, uh, the message of the cross doesn't make sense. And uh, I do wonder whether perhaps um, some of us might feel the cross, or the message of the cross, a little bit powerless. I mean, like it's been preached for a long time. What's happening? Do we feel sometimes it's a bit irrelevant? Do we feel sometimes that in our sophisticated world where um, a world so far ahead in so many ways, the first century Corinth, do we, do we feel... Or are we tempted to think that the message of the cross, yeah, fascinating ancient Near East theology, but is it contemporary? I wonder sometimes if we feel that the message of the cross is not enough. There's got to be more. I've had a lot of conversations with the people who told me that too. I understand the gospel, Ted, but there's got to be more. 
See, despite what might seem obvious to those around us, or perhaps even seem obvious to ourselves, uh, it's great to be reminded, isn't it, that there isn't one of us, not one of us, who are truly at the centre of our spiritual universe. Our human intelligence, our human wisdom, those things are of no consequence when it comes to discovering God and the truth about him. So, you know, from those of us who struggle with intellectual pursuits to those who are the brightest of university professors, from those suffering from dementia to card-carrying geniuses, from those who are hopelessly inept to the wisest of the wise, the answer is still the same. God reveals himself in the person of the Lord Jesus and the message of the cross of the Lord Jesus is powerful to save. The message of the cross of the Lord Jesus is the only basis for a truly Christian life. And best of all, this is the bit that I like the best. The message of the cross of the Lord Jesus is not just for the special people. It's for all of us. And praise God for that. Amen.